Matthew chapter 10 says, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. And the song that she sang is important in this passage of Scripture because this is the very thing that Jesus is talking about, what it means to be a real Christian, what it means to have real faith in him and to know him as Savior. It requires someone who's willing to go through what Jesus went through in a manner of speaking. As we look here in Matthew chapter 10, I'm just glad that we have the opportunity to come back to our study today. Last week we had Brother Craiglow with us, our missionary to Brazil. I enjoyed his teaching. It was good for us. I thought that we needed that. But we come back today in Matthew chapter 10 to a topic that really should hold the interest of every person in here who is a believer. Uh, Here Jesus explains exactly what it means to follow him. And if you're not a believer in Christ and you're contemplating becoming a believer, receiving Christ, then this is a Uh, should be an interesting passage for you as well because this is a perfect outline of what you can expect when you become a Christian about the commitment that is required, about the personal devotion that it takes. And also, there's much said in this chapter about personal suffering. And I would dare say that there aren't too many people that have heard a gospel presentation in, in the way that Jesus puts it in this passage. Uh, not, not really anything is said today or much is said today about what Jesus told the disciples that, in this passage. I mean, most people would actually be driven away if you came to them and told them, here's what it means for you to become a Christian. This is what has to happen in your life, and this is what you must do to show that real commitment. Most people are driven away from that. But it doesn't do us any good to hide the ramifications of the gospel of Christ. There is no point in making people think that this is something other than what it is because real saving faith actually leads you to the kind of commitment that's spoken of in this chapter. And real saving faith takes you all the way to the end of that commitment until you finally realize the prize that God has said that he will give us in heaven. Now, if you'll look, please, in in this 10th chapter, verse number 24... Uh, We're going to begin reading there and read down to verse number 33. Stand with me, please, in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 24 says, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more should they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the reading of your word. Open up this passage to us today. Help us to understand what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I believe that the first realization that a person must have when he says that he wants to be a child of God or desires to be a child of God, a person that really wants to be saved from his sins, when he comes to Christ, he must understand that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the master of his life. I believe that a real desire to be saved contains within it submission to Christ as the sovereign Lord of your life. Now, we notice in the first part of this chapter, if you've been with us in our study, that the men that Jesus chose to be his apostles were aware of the kind of commitment, and Jesus showed them the kind of commitment that it would take if they were to follow him. Now, they were given a command to preach in verse number 7. Jesus said, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you'll notice there, he mentions a kingdom. And wherever there is a kingdom, there must be a king. And these men recognized that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And they were preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand because right there in their midst at that very time was Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, who is the king of this kingdom. And it's only natural to assume that anyone who wants to enter into that kingdom would gladly submit himself to the authority of the king. Now, that seems to be just very basic information that really anyone ought to affirm. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ, whichever way you want to put that, the kingdom of heaven, is not going to be filled up with people that rebel against the king. The people that come into this kingdom recognize what the king requires because we have this book right here that tells us what the king requires. And what Christ is doing here is teaching his followers the things that he requires to be in his kingdom. And then there's an all, also another realization that goes along with this, and that is kingdoms remain kingdoms because they're more powerful than their enemies. And what Christ shows us here is that there are powerful enemies of the cross of Christ, of the kingdom of Christ. And in this chapter, starting at verse number 14, we are aware, made aware of the opposition that there is to God's kingdom. That resistance intensifies when you get to verse number 16. And then by verse number 23, we recognize something very important for every person who is a believer in Christ and is a part of that kingdom, that you also have become the enemies of people that are outside of the kingdom. And the reason that you become their enemies is because Christ is the king of his kingdom and all the other people who do not believe in him are in another kingdom. And the kingdom that they're in is the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world, and they are determined to follow their king and also to overthrow Christ in his kingdom. So a Christian has to realize what real faith brings that when you become a believer, there are consequences to your faith. And many people, most people that are outside the kingdom, when they meet you, when they uh, know you very well, they are going to react against your belief in Jesus Christ. And they are in opposition to the gospel. Now, just to catch you up from the previous two messages, this is part number three, and it's been a little while since we've been able to talk about these things. But first, we talked about verses 24 and 25, which tells us that there is a personal comparison to Jesus. 
Verse 24 says, The disciple is not above his master. That's someone who follows Christ. A disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, and that's just another word for Satan here, how much more shall they call them of his household? And these verses tell us that a person who is committed to Christ, who has a sincere faith, can expect that he will be treated in the way that Christ was treated. Because the hearts of men are evil, and because Christians live in the light of Jesus Christ, and the world dwells in the darkness of sin, they are hostile to Christianity. And it really doesn't seem like it ought to be that way. Because when we come here in a time like this, we're preaching the gospel of Christ that is able to deliver people from their sins. We're preaching something that delivers them from the wrath of hell. We're preaching something that will help them, that will give them eternal life, and yet they are against it. And people have always been against it because they don't like the news that the Bible says that people are sinners against God, that their hearts need to be changed, and the only way that they're ever going to see heaven, to see God face to face, is to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus Christ. People do not want to believe that they are justly deserving of God's wrath. Now, having said that, I will say that there are not many people, not probably not in this congregation, who have experienced real persecution for your faith. And you would probably never guess that there are enemies of churches because you see everybody just kind of peacefully sailing along. But I would tell you that whenever you see that, whenever you see a church that does not have opposition, that Satan is not fighting against it, then you've just come upon a church that does not have the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason I say this is because of what Jesus says himself in this, in this chapter where he said, you are going to be hated of all men for my name's sake. And so if that doesn't happen, if you have no opposition in your Christian life or what you think is your Christian life, if there's no opposition there, if the church you attend, there is no opposition to what's going on, then they don't have the true gospel of Jesus Christ because this is an inevitable result of knowing him. Now, secondly, we noted in this passage the proper concerns for the disciple. We're not to fear all of these people that oppose the gospel. Now, we're blessed to live in a country and to live under a government where we have freedom of religion, and that freedom allows us the safety from certain types of persecution, uh, the kind that endangers our lives, but that is not true in the history of the church, not for most of the history of the church. In fact, the history of God's church is written in the blood of martyrs. And even going back to the time before there was a church, when God chose out one particular nation, when he chose Israel to be his people, then they became hated by the world. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament. Because they are God's people, they were hated by the world. So we're really living in a unique time of history, a unique time of history for the church because we don't face death in the USA. Most places in the world, Christians are able to talk about their faith in relative freedom. And there's only a few places in the world where a limited number of places where faith in Christ, admitting your faith in Christ, would be a matter of life and death. 
So we kind of have to look at this passage on another level to begin with, and that is, if you're really striving to be like Christ, the kind of opposition that you will receive living here in the United States is the kind of opposition that you're determined that you're going to live for the faith, and that makes you unpopular with other people. You are the odd man out. If you live consistently for Christ, you'll find that you're not in the mainstream of politics, and all you have to do is just follow what's going on with our government today. You're not going to find too many people that are standing up full throttle for Jesus Christ because they know they can't get elected if they do. And there's, there's always this constant, constant uh, uh, complaining and this constant criticism of anybody who proclaims their faith in Christ. And then you also find that you're not in the mainstream of social circles. You're not going to invited, be invited to too many parties. Uh, if you're going to talk about Jesus and talk about his kingdom. And oddly enough, it also puts you outside the mainstream of the religious community. Isn't that a staggering thing? That believing in Jesus Christ and proclaiming your faith and standing for him can even put you on the outside of the religious community. Well, Jesus tells us here in verses 26 through 28 that we're not to fear anything that the world throws at us, and even though we are accused of being troublemakers, and Christians are, we uh, we're, uh, appear to be foolish or made to appear foolish to the world because of our beliefs, we do have this assurance in God's word that one day his truth will triumph. Christians will be vindicated for their faith in Jesus Christ. And those that oppose us one day, they're going to stand before God and they'll give an account of how they have treated those who are true believers. So Jesus says, no matter what they do, just keep preaching the truth. And he says here that, that what he taught them privately, in these private moments of instruction, those were not to remain secrets with them. And so he says in verse number 27, speak this in the light and shout it from the housetops. And that's because there are no secrets in our faith. God wants everybody to know about this. And the teachings of Christianity are so open that there's no one who can say or have the excuse that Christianity contains some kind of undiscoverable truth. And then he goes on in the 28th verse to say that the proper concern is not to fear what people can do to you, but to fear what God can do. Because God is the one who controls the eternal destiny. He can do more than kill the body. Now, those that oppose Christianity, those that persecute, they can only kill the body, kill, kill you in this life. But Jesus Christ, God himself, the judge, has the power of eternal life. What we have here is only temporary. Our afterlife is forever, so fear God, not men. Well, we're ready to move on now from there to these connecting thoughts that we have in verses 29 through 31, where Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. And I think that we come to these verses today as a, as a type of comfort for us. Many, many of you are going through a lot of, lot of issues. And in our family, we are. Some of your families, you are. And we come to this particular scripture today because I think there is great hope for us here. Thirdly, today, we want to talk about placement of confidence in God. 
We should not fear anything that man can do for the simple reason God cares. Now, the next verses here are telling us how much that God cares, that God is not ignorant of anything that happens in this world. He knows and he cares about every single detail of your life. And that inevitably begs the question, well, if God really cares, if he is concerned about me and he knows what I'm going through, why is the Christian life so hard? Why, why can't this be easy? Why can't I just receive Christ and have all of my troubles disappear, melt away? Why does it have to be this way? And I think that if you were here about three weeks ago, we, we, we answered that question, I think, fairly well when we talked about suffering. That the Word of God says that, that we suffer in order to be glorified with Christ. Suffering is a part of God's plan, and we might not understand it all the time, but we have to realize that Christ suffered, and our suffering is also a part of God's plan. And the reason that we don't understand that very well is because we are so focused. I mean, almost all of our focus is entirely upon present circumstances. And so we rarely look for that hope that is set before us, and we don't even recognize many times that God is actually taking care of us. Now, the idea that we're being taken care of for us is that, well, I have to live at least on the level of my next-door neighbor, and if I can live that well, think that well, things will be all right. Or if his standard is a little bit lower than what you want it to be, you just pick out somebody else, and you say, if I can live to that standard, then I'll be okay. But if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, you begin to understand why you don't have the same things that they have. Because Jesus, in this passage, is never thinking about the economic status of his people. That's not what he has in mind, and it's not what the apostles expected. But people are very confused about this today because they have been taught a Christianity that is your ticket to economic success. Now, there's only one person in this group that really thought about that. You know who it was? Judas Iscariot. He's the only one among the group of the followers of Jesus that was really concerned about his economic condition. And Jesus did not intend to teach the disciples that his purpose in coming here and his purpose in giving us salvation is to line our pockets. That's not his intent. And Judas must have been very surprised when he found out that Jesus was not going to do this. But that's the way Christianity is taught today. It's almost an axiom of Christianity that we should be wealthy, that we should have all of these things, when that idea really does not even have one shred of biblical support. It's very clearly taught against in this passage. And we even hear it from the lips of the Savior himself. And yet prosperity preaching is the gospel truth in many churches. Now that's wrong because the focus is wrong. It throws all of our attention on a standard that belongs to the world when the scripture says that God's people are not of this world. We're not not citizens of this world. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus said it very plainly. In chapter 6, he said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. And then he says this interesting thing, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
It is impossible for you to have your minds on earth, your mind on earthly treasures and at the same time have your mind on heavenly treasures. It never works that way. So that brings us, uh, or earthly treasure, I don't know if I said that right. You can't have your mind on heavenly treasures and on earthly treasures at the same time. So that brings us then back to God's care. We have kingdom work to do. And what Christ has promised us is that he would give us everything that's necessary to do that kingdom work. He'll make sure we have all the necessities of life in order to do that. And that's why he told these disciples originally, go out in faith. Don't take anything with you. There are no supplies. He wanted to show them that God will take care of them. If they trust him implicitly, God will take care of them. Now, he illustrates that principle in a very simple way in verses 29 through 31. He talks about, first of all, the care of the Creator. His intention is to show that God cares about the smallest details of creation. And he gives two examples here. And if you want to make note of them, they are the examples of selling sparrows and the hairs on your head. Now, we're going to look at these very briefly today. Number one, Jesus talks about the selling of sparrows. Now, sparrows were very common in Israel. In fact, today I think sparrows are found on every continent of the world, maybe with the exception of Antarctica. I don't, probably not any sparrows there. But there, there are sparrows in every continent of the world, and most of the time sparrows are kind of a nuisance to us. Sparrows are like pigeons when they get together. Whenever you get a bunch of pigeons together, you have a mess, don't you? And sparrows are kind of like that. You get a whole bunch of sparrows together and you're going to have a mess. Well, in the days of Jesus and the apostles, they ate sparrows. So you would go to the market and you would buy sparrows and that would be like going to McDonald's to get a bag of french fries. I mean, there were so many sparrows and they were very inexpensive. Luke even tells us that you could get five sparrows for a farthing. That means that if you bought four... For two farthings, rather, if you bought four, they'd throw one in for free. That's how cheap that they were. So they ate these little sparrows like finger food, like we would French fries. And so they were very common. And the point here is that God has his eye on every one of those sparrows, even the smallest one that becomes a part of your value meal. He says, "You, I have my eye on that. I know about that. Now, if you, if you pay attention to birds, you, you know that there are millions upon millions of birds. Sometimes you see blackbirds that, that flock in all together, and the trees are just black with these blackbirds. And then when they, something spoofs them or they get ready to go, they all fly up in the air at the same time, and the sky is just blackened with all of these birds. There are a lot of birds. Well, the idea is that God knows and he cares about every single one of his creatures, God has to take care of those birds because as he said in another place over in Matthew chapter 6 that I'll read to you in just a moment, that the birds don't plant crops and the birds don't gather their things into barns. The birds don't prepare for next year. They know that their food is going to be there and they know that they can't do anything about that. Somebody has to take care. uh, An instinct says that's going to be taken care of. Well, God cares about that. He takes care of the birds. Matthew 6 says, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? 
Behold the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. And then he says, are you not much better than they? And if you look at our text verse in Matthew 10, 31, he makes the same statement in another way. He says, fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Now, what Jesus is teaching us here is something that's very applicable to the situation that we're in. Many of you people are worried about jobs. Many of you are worried about how your families are going to make it. You worry about how you're going to pay your bills. And that's a real concern, and I do understand that concern. But the Word of God says that His people are not going to starve. If you are faithful to the Lord, He will take care of you. Now, He never promised that what He would do was plunk you right down into the lap of luxury. He never said that you're going to have all these things and life will be simple and easy. All we need to do is just look at the life of the Apostle Paul. It wasn't simple and easy. The disciple is not above his master. That's what Jesus said, and it wasn't simple and easy for him. He depended upon his heavenly Father to take care of him. And that's why Jesus never owned a home. It's why he didn't have a bank account. And then eventually in his life, of course, he was crucified. He died because they crucified him. But Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And the apostle Paul said, so what if I die? So what? If I lose everything, it doesn't matter because I have Christ. And when I have Christ, I haven't really lost anything. And so he says, if I live, I'll live for Christ. And if I die, that doesn't matter because all that God will do is just bring me into eternal life with Christ in heaven. Well, he gives us another example. And example number two is the hairs on your head. And for some of you, this is a not, not a very comforting example. Uh, every hair on your head is numbered, but the count is so small that the comparison here's kind of lost meaning for you. But l- let's, let's think about who Jesus was talking to. L- let's talk about the average, young, healthy Jewish male, 25 years old with full head of hair, full beard. There's lots of hairs on that head. Well, God is so concerned about the details that the Word of God says that you cannot lose even a hair without God knowing about that. Now, you think about, there's, there's about 7 billion people on this planet, and God knows how many hairs every one of those people have. Not only does he know that, but he has numbered every one of those hairs. So if number 23,482 falls out of your head, he knows about that. He knows that happened to you. Do you know that the average redhead has about 90,000 hairs on their head? The average brunette has 110,000. The average blonde has 140,000 hairs on their head. Now, I don't know why it takes 30,000 more to cover a blonde head than it does a brunette head. I mean, there's got to be a blonde joke in there somewhere, but I digress. The point is that God knows about this and that he cares about even the tiniest details. And even if, if you wanted to know more about what an omniscient God knows, he knows every cell in your body. He knows when a cell in your body dies, and then he knows when that cell is regenerated, when a new one grows there. Every time one is replaced, God knows about that. And the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that if God knows these small details and God keeps track of every one of them, then what does he know about his children? Certainly he knows about them. What about those he gave his life to redeem? 
He is definitely not going to let any detail of your life go unnoticed. And so, in the example of suffering for his cause here, he knows if you're going through that, and he also knows that he has a reward for everything that you go through. So he says, fear ye not, ye are more value than many sparrows. But we also need to notice something that's really important here, and that's the grace for greater good. I mean, we're usually thinking about ourselves, and we're thinking about our circumstances, and that's what we always tend to do. And what we have to do is to remember that God has a greater purpose in mind than our enjoyment of this world. He has a greater purpose in mind because what God is doing, he's always in the process of making you more like him, making you more like the master. I mean, he's working towards the completion of your sanctification. And if you don't understand the word sanctification, it simply means that process of becoming holy like God is holy. It means that God is separating you from your sins. He's purging you from your sins so that you can be more like him. And so every hardship that you go through, every persecution that you endure is God working in that process. And each one of those problems that comes into your life is God making you more dependent upon him. You know what happens to you when life is easy? You know what happens to you when there are no problems? We tend to forget God. We live as if God doesn't even exist. This is why the psalmist wrote this. Psalm 103, David said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. Now, could you plug that statement into Matthew chapter 10? God is in control. Whatever happens, God will accomplish a greater good. He says the Lord executes judgment for all that are oppressed, executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. And so whenever you see that you are in the providence of God, when you see God working in your life, then the dependence that you have for God on God is intensified. So don't ever fear that God has forgotten you. He knows you so well that he allows exactly what you need to come into your life to bring you closer to him. Well, we still need to get down to the real grit of the passage, which we find in verses 32 and 33. He says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now here, Jesus is teaching us about public confession of Christ. Public confession of Christ. Whosoever, therefore. Now this is a conclusion. And it's a natural conclusion of all that he said up to this point. None of the previous statements make any sense if a person is a Christian, but nobody knows about it. Persecution is not going to follow a person that never makes his profession known. Religious persecutors don't track down anybody that they don't know is a Christian. 
They don't throw people into jail. They don't torture them. They didn't all through the history of the church look for people that weren't Christians. I mean, something had to be shown that they were different. Governments don't punish non-dissidents and put them in prison. The Roman government was not busily beating people and throwing them to the lions when they were saying all of the time, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And here in this passage, if you read earlier, families will not turn on family members when there isn't any cause to do so. And so it seems very evident that what we're being taught here is that tight-lipped people are not really Christians. They don't fit the mold that's described in this passage. So there is no such thing as a non-confessing Christian. That doesn't exist. There are no non-confessing Christians. If Christ is the king of his kingdom, folks, you have to declare his loyal, your loyalty to him. Now, that's next. The Lord requires loyalty. And that seems axiomatic. I mean, what subject ever receives the protection of his king if he's not loyal? You see, Christ never allows anybody to cross his moat and to come into his kingdom unless they have at, fir- at first stood at the gate and declared their loyalty to the king. And there shouldn't be any debate about that. But that's another of these fundamental questions of Scripture that's often questioned. But what does the Word, God, Word of God say about confession? Paul wrote in, Rome, wrote in Romans chapter 10, But what saith it? The Word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the Word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And so he's telling us, the Word of God is telling us, confession of Christ must be made. And we say, what does confession mean? Well, confession means that you agree with God's assessment of your sinfulness and that you will put all of your hope, your trust, and your reliance in Christ to save you from your sins. And that confession of Christ is demonstrated by living a life that's loyal to him. Well, how do we show that loyalty? Scripture's very clear about it. We keep his commandments. Does that mean that we're saved by the keeping of commandments? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that we have a living faith and not a dead faith because a living faith always produces this desired result. That's living for Christ. Now, some people will say, well, once I become a Christian, the laws of God, I mean, everything that's written in there, the laws of God, those have no effect on me any longer because I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Well, for sure, as a means of being saved, you're not justified by keeping laws. You are under the grace of God. But what the grace of God does for every person who has become a believer in Jesus Christ, it enables him to live out his faith. It enables him to keep God's commandments. And so the evidence that we are truly Christians is found in the obedience to what God has told us. The Apostle John wrote, And thereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And so what John explains in 1 John is that any person who claims to know Christ... And it doesn't change him from disobedience to obedience. Is lying to himself. He's lying to others. And more importantly, he is lying to God. See, our loyalty to Christ is shown by obeying everything that the king has told us to do. 
And did you know that's exactly what Jesus taught the disciples to say to new converts? He said, you go out and you baptize them, you bring them in. And then what does he say in verse number 20 of the Great Commission in Matthew 28? He says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So public confession of Christ is something done with our mouths and with our lives. And that's not an added part to the gospel. This is inherent in the gospel. This is the work of God in you that causes the confession and then produces in you the right kind of life. And so if there's anybody that says, well, I have confidence in that I came up this aisle and at one time I knelt at these steps or I walked over there and the pastor led me down into the baptistry and I got baptized. And so therefore, there is my confidence that I'm a Christian. Well, the Bible never says to put your confidence there. The Bible says to put your confidence in something that happens in your life. It is a reoriented life so that you want to live for Christ and obey what he tells you to do. The Word of God says that this is not your work to be able to do that. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So if there is no evidence of God's work, what would the conclusion be? There is no salvation. That's what Jesus is teaching. It's plain in the passage. And let me say this about baptism for just a moment. The very first act of obedience for a Christian is baptism. Jesus said to the apostles, preach the gospel and baptize the converts. Every convert that you see in the New Testament was immediately baptized. That was an act of obedience, and it was a public way of saying, I have identified with Christ. And if you refuse to do that, then you don't have that part of the evidence of obedient faith. So verse number 32 is the positive side of this. He says, if you confess me before men, you do these things. That's evidence of real faith. And he says that Christ will confess you before his heavenly Father. God, he will say to the Father, this is my child. But then we have a woeful negative in verse number 33. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now here is the problem. Denial leads to destruction. And I don't want to go any further before I explain to you what it means for Christ to deny you. Now, you've heard me preach six messages recently on this. There are terrible consequences for denying Christ. And he's not talking here about abject sinners. He's not talking about people here who never claim to know Christ. He's not speaking of somebody out there who's living in the world, just living it up and never acted like he had any interest in Christ whatsoever. He is rather speaking here about people who say they are Christians, and yet they will not accept the level of discipleship that he's teaching in this passage. Now, if you'll turn just back a, turn back a few pages to chapter 7, verse number 21... Jesus has just been giving examples of fruit-bearing, and he talks about corrupt fruit, and he talks about or compares that to evil lifestyles. He talks about false teaching. And in this case, he says, if that is true, then the tree is bad, comparing that to an old lifestyle of an unregenerate heart. And he says, those types of people are the ones that are going to be cast into hell. But many of those people that he was talking to said they're Christians. And so he says in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now he's talking about people that say they're Christians, 
But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Destruction results when we are told to depart from God. And so that means that a person who denies Christ, I'll put it to you simply, will be thrown into the everlasting fires of hell. That's what nobody likes to hear about. And whenever we talk about that, we're considered to be crazy fundamentalist. In this day and age, nobody believes in hell. You don't talk about hell. But all we're doing here is reading the words that Jesus said. We're reading the word of God. And these people who claim there is no hell, you don't talk about hell, these are the same people that claim they know Christ. And they are in opposition to him. They don't say the same thing that Jesus says. And he says here, he will deny you before the Father. Now, why do you need to be concerned about that verse? Well, you need to be concerned because there is a day coming when what you will need more than anything that you have ever needed in all your life is for Christ to confess you before his Father. You need that more than the car that you drive and all the things of this world that you think that you can't live without. You need that more than the house that you live in and that you may be taking God's money to help support the payments. You need to know that Christ is not going to deny you before the Father more than you need anything else. Everything else pales in comparison to that. And it's really the point here of bearing up under persecution and being willing to die for Christ. And if your faith does not produce that kind of commitment, Jesus says, you will be denied before my Father. You see, it's, it's, it's hard to say that you're going to die for Christ when you won't live for him. Now, I want to close my message today with a true story. This is about a house church that was in the former Soviet Union. And, I, and I'm sure that all of you understand that Back in those days when communism ruled the Soviet Union, that religion was something that they tried to stamp out. You couldn't be an open Christian. People could be, would be imprisoned for that. And they had a state church, and they would allow that to a certain extent. But if you were confessed to be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you could be killed or imprisoned for your faith. And so what the people had to do if they were Christians, they had to meet in secret. And they had to go to places where they wouldn't be detected when they, when they wanted to worship the Lord. Now, this is a true story. One Sunday, these believers, that is, those true Christians that wanted to meet together, one Sunday, these believers inconspicuously came in small groups throughout the day so as not to arouse the suspicion of KGB informers. By dusk, they were all safely inside, windows closed, and doors locked. They began by singing a hymn quietly, but with deep emotion. Suddenly, the door was pushed open, and in walked two soldiers with loaded automatic weapons at the ready. One shouted, All right, everybody line up against the wall. If you wish to renounce your commitment to Jesus Christ, leave now. Two or three quickly left, then another. After a few more seconds, two more. This is your last chance. Either turn against your faith in Christ, he ordered, or stay and suffer the consequences. Another left. Finally, two more in silent embarrassment with their faces covered, slipped out into the night. No one else moved. Parents with small children trembling beside them looked down reassuringly. 
They fully expected to be gunned down or at best be imprisoned. After a few moments of complete silence, the other soldier closed the door, looked back at those who stood against the wall and said, keep your hands up. But this time, in praise of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we too are Christians. We were sent to another house church several weeks ago to arrest a group of believers. The other soldier interrupted, but instead we were converted. We have learned by experience, however, that unless people are willing to die for their faith, they cannot be fully trusted. Can you imagine going through a test like that? Line up against the wall. If you're a Christian, line up against the wall. And you have an opportunity right now. You can leave and everything will be all right. You stay here, you'll be shot. When I preached about this a couple or three weeks ago, I told you the story about a young 16-year-old girl that was going to be killed for her faith. And in fact, she was beheaded. And there was a person that came to me after that service and said, it makes you wonder, could you really do that? I mean, if you were told that you were going to be killed for your faith, could you, could you do that? I mean, would you not deny Christ if you knew that your life was going to be taken? Well, none of us here have ever been asked to cross that bridge, but I have confidence in the Word of God when it says that real faith holds out. Real faith keeps its commitment. It's the kind of faith that stays in the building and it dies. The kind of faith that would cause you to die when you know that if you renounce Christ and give up your faith, you can live. I'm convinced that real Christians will stand that test. But I'm also very much convinced that a person who says that they are a Christian but they will not speak up for Christ and they won't live for Christ. Not in the USA, in good old America, where no one has ever persecuted really for their faith. I'm convinced that a person that will not speak for Christ, that will not confess him, is really a true Christian. See, folks, it's time for us to take a gut check, heart check, whatever you want to call it, and determine do we really know Christ? Christ is the evidence of knowing him in our lives. And I hope and sincerely hope that you have a true faith in him. Your faith is real. If it is, it'll confess Christ and it will stand the test. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the time we've spent together. These are hard things for people to accept today to think that we might have to have persecution, that we have to go through trouble in our lives, that this is an expected thing for those that are Christians. We have been told that we will suffer if we are true believers. Lord, give us the hope that we need. Give us that strong faith. I pray for your people that are going through so many things in their lives and they're wondering what's going on, what's going to happen, just to have that faith in you, that, Lord, you are in control of all things. I pray for those today who may not know you as Savior. The very worst thing that we need in our lives is to be confessed before the Father in heaven that we know Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring people to faith today. Bless us as we end this service this morning. Be with your people. Speak to hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.